Welcome back to another episode of Hit Record. Good news this week, I have a guest, and we are joined by somebody back home, a dear friend. We touch on topics of prison, violence, addiction, and the redemptive aspects of service work, mentorship, God, all the etc. Some language might not be suitable, suitable for children, just a fair warning, but it was a joy to record. Please enjoy. All right, in the name of the podcast of Hit Record, we are just going to hit record. Um, we're back here with a dear friend Paul Weisapple here in Omaha. Um, we gave the recording a shot earlier in the week and had some technical difficulties, and here we are um, for round two to get a little bit um, of Paul's story, um, and where we left off last time is, is where we might begin today. So I'm going to, um, yeah, just welcome the guest again, Paul Weisapple, dear friend from back home. Um, Paul, I've, uh, been familiar with you and your family, all of your brothers, your parents, um, since I was just a little kid and I've seen, seen a lot, um, and, yeah, I'm just, I'm grateful, man. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to see you where you are now. And, um, I'd like to open up just by, uh, sharing a, a quick little bit. You, uh, found yourself, um, in prison and there was, uh, something going on. Uh, you had a moment of complete chaos that, uh, distilled in you a moment of, of clarity and stillness. And, uh, I think you said there's a riot going on and, in prison. Um, and if, if you wouldn't mind just getting the listener up to speed, uh, just a quick recap of the final, um, I guess moment or, or what brought you to prison, um, just briefly, and then an experience, what, what this experience was like in prison that gave you this moment of clarity or, or connection or, um, whatever it is. Thanks, Don. So at this point, I am facing a uh, assault with deadly weapon um, sentence at uh, the diagnostic center waiting to go to the next prison. I had just kind of found out that I wasn't going to be going to the prison closest to my family because uh, said victim was going to be at that prison. So I was going to be going to another prison called Nebraska State Penitentiary. Um, maybe not as famous as the old Tecumseh is in Nebraska, but equally horrible because it's the combination of a maximum security prison where people are doing extreme long times. I mean, Nico Jenkins was there when I was there. Um, a lot of people are doing a lot of time there. Um, but where I'm at right now, this moment where we're kind of catching back up is I am in a cell in mod eight and there's a fire happening. And basically, I think I'm going to die. So I'm in my room, um, kind of like a equal to kind of SWAT team has come in and put us in our rooms because the the building is actually burning. The bur building is burning. The beds are burning uh, at one point. 
and um, there's a lot of very chaotic stuff happening. And in my room, I couldn't see or hear or couldn't see anything. All I could do is hear screaming and banging and I could smell burning stuff. And um, like you said, I just had a moment of clarity and quiet. And as I'm listening to the sounds, the banging and the screaming and the yelling from, you know, we all talk to each other in our vents and stuff too. So it's like you kind of had people upstairs that were feeding us information, which was actually making it worse on a lot of levels because they're just saying crazy shit the whole time. Um, kind of like a play-by-play for a really like bad MMA fight, but it's a riot. You know, like, and we're just getting beat up and someone's describing it the whole time. Um, mentioning the people that are getting let out of the mod, et cetera. And uh, so I just kind of like had to make a decision to sit back and pay attention to my thoughts. And I sat there and meditate and I started having this kind of deep realization about maybe 40 minutes into just sitting there um, that I, I, I wasn't trying to escape outwardly anymore I was trying to escape inwardly and kind of made a big emotional commitment to um, just stay with my breath and in that few minutes that that happened I saw that I was assigning the meaning to each one of the sounds that was happening during the ride and I was creating or subtracting suffering based on what I thought that sound was you know big loud bang Oh, that's someone getting beat up. Um, that's my friend getting beat up. Um, small, quiet clang. Oh, maybe it's over. <laughs> and I kept kind of just seeing in this holographic weird world that I had created in my head because I could only go by sound that I was the one assigning the meaning of suffering to each sound I heard. And at about um, a day or two of being in my room and um, eating trash. <laughs> they let us out of our, our, our cells and there's a big picture window that overlooks the workout area. And I looked out and there's a beautiful hawk sitting in a pine tree across the yard outside the fences. And it just, I was watching it and I was just thinking, wow, it's nice to be out of my room right now. I felt like I was like <laughs> as close as I could be to bonding out. I felt so good to just be out of my room. And the hawk dived into the yard and just near the pull-up bar and dip bar there was a bunny and the hawk grabbed a bunny out of the yard and right as that hawk hawk's talons grabbed that 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 little bunny i realized that everything was in fear and i had this kind of like i think the thing i said was oh my fuck and i felt like this yeah i don't know how to describe it basically it felt like my heart was pouring or crying and releasing, you know, like, and I was like, put my hands on my chest and then I took a breath and it felt like I wasn't breathing. I was being breathed and I took a step and I was like, these are my feet. Like I was, these are my feet. Like I was like having almost like a psychedelic, you know, Kensho Satori kind of moment. And I, and then it was like really funny because I was like, oh, well, if it was all fear, then if you would have known better, you could have done better, but now you know better. So, and it like, I got like teary, like a teary kind of sensation in my heart and head where I was like, oh shit, now you've got a responsibility to do no harm. And it was like, 
whoa. And there was just like these ongoing insights that just kept coming out. Like one of the insights I had, and I don't know, this is pretty far out there, is that like this separation of what we think we are of a human separate from God, separate from the earth, separate from whatever is not true. And that there's this like star that blew up and over eons and eons, it's consciousness has started to play with things. And that play is me. And I am looking at my own feet through God's eyes right now. And it was like this weird, like, holy shit, I'm a star on a star right now. <laughs> like, it was such a funny experience because, like, I've had a lot of psychedelic experiences over the years. But the fact that I was wide awake, the fact that I was wide aware, and the fact that I was in a place where you can't talk about your feelies uh, in a stabby, stabby little mod that I was in at the time with, you know, 20-year-olds who just killed someone over a 20-sack, Um it was a tough place to to cultivate that and hold on to it. So yeah, that catches everybody up from there. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, what a wild uh, experience and all to culminate in, I guess, a series of moments. You have your first kind of awareness during the riot and burning itself. And then a couple days later, um, something that maybe kind of drives it home or solidifies it to uh, start to build the foundation that is going to become your future um, to take you from then here to now. Um, just real quick, you mentioned that it was it, it became um, clear to you that uh, moving forward, that uh, part of your story or, or your mission or guiding principle is do no harm. Um, you became uh, acutely aware of of something that uh, previously in your life, uh, just real quick for for anybody listening, um, do you know where do you feel like in a a brief you can just fire off um, uh, ways in which you think uh, you you were living in harm towards yourself and others? Who did it affect? How did it affect them? Um, because I feel like it's important to know a little bit about the story leading up to, um, this realization because, uh, there's a lot of meat on that bone. Um, so just curious if you're open to and willing to share just a quick list of, you know, whether it's charges or family or violence or drug use to yourself and other, whatever it is, if there's just a quick little thing that comes to mind as to the harmful, destructive, chaotic path that you were on so that we can create a clear contrast to where we're going. Well, this is kind of a fun opportunity since you have the receipts to so many of these violent crimes from when we were younger, isn't it, Dylan? <laughs> <laughs> so in our grade school of, 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 of pretty, uh, for the most part, nice white people, uh, my brothers and I were the only of other race children, I think, other than maybe one girl who was Asian who went there for a couple of years, but I can't really think of that many families that weren't Anglo. And I think that at certain times in my life, I just became comfortable with violence because there was a couple of people um, who called my brother the N word and I just hit him. And I had that capacity to fight anyone. I had the capacity to fight anyone and lose. And so to catch up from my childhood of fighting bullies for my brothers, my brothers are no longer there because they're scared to be around me. But 
I'd still go into anyone's house. And at certain points, I was pretty comfortable um, throwing a, an artillery shell in someone's trap house and just going and taking their gun and their dope right off the table and walking right out while an artillery shell burns their couch and their cat. I just got to that place, you know. Um, and I don't say that to glorify it. I'm just saying it from that perspective of that carelessness of human life. I just thought that I could just keep pushing it. And it wasn't until um, I did nearly kill someone. And that's why I was there uh, at this exact moment um, that I did realize that, oh, my God, life is fragile. And I've hurt so many people. And every time I hurt someone else, though they may have the wound, I have the karma wound. And the karma wound is deeper than the actual physical wound. The physical wound will go away. But the karma wound doesn't go away. There's a lot of things you have to do for that to be healed. And a lot of them is just taking right action and, and doing no harm. So I think that catches it up from there. Yeah, man, thanks for sharing. I know <clears throat> diving into the past is, uh, yeah, it can be challenging. I'm sure you've done it plenty. And um, so it sounds like from the time you were a child until this moment of, of your kind of uh, last violent attack that almost killed somebody that puts you into prison. Um, do you feel like that experience and the confrontation that led to that, um, that altercation that almost killed this man that puts you into prison? Do you think that there is, uh, from your perspective, a, an intelligence, do you think that there's, is God intervening through chaos in your life to put you in a position to come to this awareness? Um, I, I, I know how I feel about struggle and circumstance and things like this, but do you think that, that God was working in your life in your moment to bring you to your knees in a way that you, he could finally reach you? Um, or, or what's your interpretation of, of that? Yeah, I actually got the chills when you said that because there is something that happened with all this suffering that it seemed so meaningless and hopeless and there was just so much desperation and despair and, and these just attributes of anger all the time. It's like when I surrendered in that jail cell or that prison cell and said, I can't escape out here, it sent like a reverberation where I surrendered. I didn't believe in anything though. Here's the thing. At that point, I didn't believe in anything. So when I walked out of my room and a, a fucking hawk grabbing a bunny answers me and the universe starts laughing at me, I could feel the intelligence of the consciousness all the way through my feet. That's why I was just like, oh my God, these are my feet. These are my eyes. These are, these are God's feet. This is God's eyes. And it was like a intergalactic kind of laugh like God's like see I showed you you didn't believe and it was like just kind of like kept coming and kept coming you know and I don't think that most people who have non-mystical experiences whether psychedelic or from meditation or from surrender or devotion whatever they do can really understand that like it's super nice to believe in God but to feel him shooting through your body like a <laughs> like a shock wave and shooting light out of every pore of neurons you have because you realize it's his neurons too 
and that you're looking for him and there's nothing to seek. It's been sought is a pretty fucking wild change for a nihilistic, atheistic, weirdo shaman like myself. You know, like I just thought there was some sort of dark chaos. I didn't really believe there was a loving consciousness behind it all. So it was kind of a weird wake up. I didn't believe in. <laughs> I didn't want to believe in. Yeah, I didn't want to believe in. Um, that nihilism is a is a dark road, especially uh, with the application that you had interpreted and put into action in your life. So at this time when you're in prison, you basically cut ties or been cut out of the lives of most of the people that you care about. Is that correct? So I never talked to my brothers anymore. I didn't really talk. I wasn't, I was uninvited to family gatherings. I was actually specifically uninvited, um, for good reasons. I was insane. I was insane. I was violent. I was always in the middle of something really bad. Uh, I was hanging out with people that you really just went around, went around anything that you want to keep. Um, my parents never gave up on me though. And they still visited me. They still visited me. I mean, they wouldn't bond me out. They wouldn't get me an attorney, but you know, they put money on my books, which if anyone's ever been locked up, you know, you really find out who, who you fuck with by who drops money on your books. And after doing 10 years, the fact that my parents would put $40 a month or $40 every two weeks on my books, that's pretty incredible. And they would never accept uh, an amends or a payback. So now I just pay for their cell phones. I went and switched their name on our cell phones. So now I pay for their cell phones for life to try to pay that back. Because it's like, what parents could ever put up with that? I mean, my dad came and visited me when I got the, the charge I was in there with. And he goes, uh, this is funny because it's so true. He goes, uh, so it says you're facing 72 years. And I go, yeah, dad. And he goes, you probably deserve it. <laughs> uh, I could hear John saying that now. Which uh, is so dark. It is dark. Uh, it's uh, pretty fitting and probably pretty accurate. Um, there's a really deep sense of wisdom and patience that exists in both John and Barb, both your parents, um, that I've seen from early on because all three of you boys in your own ways, uh, took them to their absolute edge and their absolute limit. And by the time their oldest ends up in jail for almost killing somebody, um, I have to imagine to some degree, there's almost a sigh of relief for them to see you in a safe place where you're forced to sober up. Um, I know that prisons, you can get in plenty of trouble in prison as well. Um, we all know that, but, um, I, it's so cool, man. I'm, I'm really grateful that you touched on that because your parents are truly special people, um, for sticking with all of you and with you, especially, um, to visit, to put money on your books. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's touching. It's, it's actually makes me emotional to think about. Um, so there's a long trail behind you at this point, violence, drugs, mixed up in different gangs, including the cartel. Uh, I don't know if there's people or whatever that want to kill you or want to see you hurt or in pain. Um, but let's just jump ahead with, let's get a quick 
recap of of that moment from when the the hawk swoops the bunny um we all know that this healing journey is not linear and i'm sure that it wasn't peaches and cream from that moment on um what did the next couple of years or however long you were in prison beyond this uh just very briefly what did it look like what did you study and when did you actually get out so I was actually really lucky when I got to NSP where I landed and you're right. It, it's uh it's a journey without a goal. And there was so many different things. And I definitely wasn't a saint after my spiritual experience. I did not like, you know, walk around in a white linen cloth, hugging people and kissing people. I was still, there's a lot of work to be done. It was just the beginning. Um, I was still engaged in, you know, I still use drugs after that. I still didn't think it was about drugs. What I thought it was about not hurting people. Ironically, um, I was a person too, and that would that would come to fruition later on. But the things I studied were the Christian mystics, uh, Meister Eckert, um, Thomas Merton. I read a lot of Thomas Merton, uh, Teresa of Avila. Um, I read a lot of Pema Chodron, uh, an incredible teacher on fear. Um, I was in lockdown for extorting people. I was extorting people. So I was in lockdown. I was in SAG and someone slid underneath my door, the book, uh, when things fall apart. And I was so scared to lose that book because it wasn't my book and it didn't have my name. And it wasn't a librarian book, a library book that I copied the entire book by hand in my notebooks. That's desperation to, to grow right there. And I didn't know that that was desperation to grow right there, but I copied it. And there's one part in that book that I'll never forget that she says, fear is nothing but, but the natural response to getting closer to the truth. And from that point on, my path has been aimed for the fear. The fear tells me exactly what's important to me and where the ego really wants to guide me and gives me the data from. So like, I know that by feeling into what, that fear is about and asking my question like the question what do you really want from me you know what do you really need or what are you resistant to those those three questions will really get you into the space of like what is this really about right so like i've read a lot about fear i'm obsessed with fear that's like my main thing because that was where my big update came from um lots of Thich Nhat han which i'm still um, in a Thich Nhat Hanh Plum Village tradition sangha, um, the, the beautiful Vietnamese master who rebelled against both the Americans and the Vietnamese during the Vietnamese of uh, uh, Vietnam War, and went to France. I think his teachings on um, how to really fall in love with yourself and how to really like reparent yourself is is such a great blend of of Western Christian. Um, active uh, Christianity and I think that it's a great blending of, of the, the ancient tradition of Buddhism too and I think that his Living Buddha Living Christ is a must read for anyone who's looking to figure things out um, plus Parallax Press sends books to, for free to prisons which I every book company should do that um, so I had a lot of books from Parallax which is uh, the Plum Village tradition um, I was reading lots of Stoicism got obsessed with Epictetus just obsessed in fact um, his practice of when things get complex like when I feel overwhelmed with something bad happening 
I just tell myself, this is by no means as it appears. That's a game changer. You know, Terrence McKenna said, nobody has enough data to worry. Same thing. By the time you've made your algorithm, the algorithm has changed because the data points have changed. The the fuck do we know? (laughs) So I was getting really deep into Stoicism, Zen, um, Seneca, lots and lots of Stoicism for sure. Lots of different types of of Eastern tradition stuff. Taoism for sure. I love Taoism. Um, there's a really good quote from the Tao Te Ching that blows my mind. I think it's from the Thomas Cleary edition. He says, accept humiliation as the surprise of finding your own true self. So when you get humiliated, which I've been humiliated and put on crime stoppers and on the news and held in handcuffs and stuff like that, whatever's burning is what my ego is. That's, that's real. That's really what I think I am, how people see me. That's not real at all. That's a, that's a, that's a mirage. So that's really like where the updates in practice came. It's all cool to have all this data. Like we've, we were talking about before we got going, the data is great, right? But it's the reps of your practice. How long do you sit quiet? How long do you not talk? Do you think about why you're talking? What kind of harm do you do with your language? You know, um, some practices I really like from Plum Village are when I have fear, I go, am I sure? No, I'm not. I'm not sure about anything. And then what am I doing? I'm talking to my friend Dylan right now. We're talking about real shit. I'm in the moment. And if I catch myself doing something that's against who I want to be, I go, hello, habit energy, which is a trip. All right. Tell me more about this habit energy. Um, cause I saw that in a text from you. Um, and this is fun because I have no context here. Um, uh, but I, I just to recap and, and emphasize and, and show appreciation for what you've shared just right there of, of, uh, in this 2023 hour, we have a never ending source and access to whatever fucking information and data data and whatever we want is at our fingertips, but we're stuck because we all don't have a practice. We all don't have presence. I'm, I'm making generalizations here, obviously. Um, but th- it's, it's just such an important, doesn't matter. You can read all the self-help books, listen to all the seminars. You can go hire up all the coaches and, and even read about the spiritual traditions and mystics. And if you don't find something that helps you put that into a daily practice to start getting those reps in that the chaos stays, you just have more, more data, but more information is not always better. I, I talk to people all the time and I'm like, what, like stop listening to seven podcasts a week. You already have enough. You're full. Your vessel is full. Your mind is full. Your heart can't find its own creative expression. And, and so I just, I love that you took us to that point of, uh, you can sit in prison and read all these things over and over again. And that is a piece of it, certainly. And, and the fact that you were seeking and so thirsty for the wisdom and understanding, but without you flipping that into 
a practice of getting still and getting silent of asking yourself the questions of, is this true? Is it real? Finding the, your, your way out of the situation and into a more objective way of viewing it amidst a chaotic life, which we all know life gets chaotic and sometimes stays chaotic that these practices are, are so critical and so crucial and something I want to touch on, uh, in the future, as I found, as I find my footing more in this path of what I'm doing now is following Jesus. And I'm, I'm specifically, I've, I've gone down a lot of different spiritual paths. Most of them are more like indigenous shamanic, uh, and, but, but some other stuff too, a little bit of Buddhism here, a little bit of Hindu, uh, pretty deep in yoga for a minute, especially my wife was. So I've explored and ex I've, the only thing I haven't given proper attention to is following and learning about the life of Christ and this figure in history and what he represents as the son of God. Um, so I, I guess the, um, my, my question for you now is that like, this is the path I'm on. We share, there's some overlap certainly in our, our, history uh of things that we have explored um you've zoomed in more on certain things like stoicism um the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and nonviolence and more mindful I, I've always meditated you know for about the past 12 years mostly a daily practice but not rooted in any specific tradition or observation method or at question asking um, so while we do have all this overlap, I would like to know briefly through your time of learning about the Christian mystics, um, about the, what, what do you feel when the topic of, of Jesus comes up and what do you think of, of Christ? So this is something that I've had to really look at from different lenses. In fact, I had to do a lot of work to unlearn first. Growing up the way we did with the Catholic Mafia, as we jokingly call it. Um, I think that because I'm adopted, because I always felt separate from, I couldn't hear exactly what was going on. It actually, like this last few years, I've read a lot on St. Paul. And I think that helped me understand Christ a lot better. Um, as far as what I believe his teaching is, I think his teaching is, is, is universal love. I think he was just trying to really bring people together and, and stop the ethnic violence, the political violence that was in his time. And I think that that is the exact same thing that every spiritual leader, uh, is usually doing most of the time. Um, I'm not going to generalize right there, but I think that his ability to trust God so deeply that he could even surrender to death is the great teaching. How do we do that? How do we surrender so deeply to what we want that we are guided to be a symbolic movement for everything we do? And I think that's what I relate to the most is his still humanness when he's like, God, dad, yo, what's going on here? Right. And I think that actually really helps kind of go back into your kind of your original question. Like, what does this practice look like? Right. What is habit energy? 
Okay, so my habit energy tells me I'm not good enough. I've always got a, what uh, Terry Brock calls the trance of unworthiness, shame. You're adopted. No one wanted you. You're uh, all that stuff, you know, all the stuff that could spiral out of that stuff. So when I find myself thinking those thoughts, I go, hello, have energy. I just smile at it. It's not me. It's 35 years of rooted practice and feeling separate from everything. It's not who I am. So having a massive level of grace for it and dialing out of it the same way Jesus did, right? When he said, okay, here we go, right? His habit energy was to be like, God, I don't, I don't really believe this is what I have to do, but he did it anyways, right? So my habit energy tells me to do one thing and my practice tells me to do another. That's the whole point of a practice. And the am I sure... Am I sure what I'm worrying about is true? No. The next question is, what am I doing? I'm sitting here. I'm breathing. I'm in my new A6. I love these new A6, by the way. It's just simple things like that, right? Just simply feeling the senses in my body so that the thoughts in my head aren't so loud. And then I can hear the have energy speaking, oh, what you said there was stupid, you know, judging me. You know, so anytime I have a judgment about someone else or myself, or some shame spiral stuff going on, which is common, I think, for all of us because we're all kind of programmed to not feel worthy of anything because that's what our society programming has done to us at this point. I just go, hello, habit energy, and I move on. It's just it's that awareness first. First, I have to know where the thorn in the bush or the bush with the thorns is to know and have some recognition. And then later on, I can just kind of avoid it Yeah, thank you for breaking down the habit, <sighs> habit energy. Yeah. Um, the thorn in the side. You think that's what the thorn in the side was for for Paul? Um. Yeah. Yeah. I was named right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mom and dad. Um. This this habit energy. Do you think that there is I, I guess I just I'm interested to zoom in a little bit more just briefly on this because is is there something actually behind that habit energy so what I my dad he'll talk about uh, Father Gillick who's a legendary priest here in Omaha blind guy he's really old incredibly wise um, he steps outside the religiosity he'll push back when the Jesuits do something he doesn't agree with I mean he's a he's a legit guy um, and when he hears, when his mind has something, what I would, what I would say similar to what you're characterizing as habit energy, he will say, it's essentially help not today, Satan. I know that you are represented by, I know that you are, I know the enemy is behind this and today. So do you think your habit energy is there anything actually spiritually behind that or is it simply a culmination of a life of of to which degree somebody has been influenced by society or addiction or not feeling enough or do you think that there's actually spiritual energy or or something behind that that's driving that or is it just your habit energy simple as that turn it off go to your practice 
ask yourself the real questions. Like I talked about earlier, fear and then there's faith. There's fear and there's faith, right? So like I think that that habit energy comes from generations and generations of trauma and fear wrapped around our simple little DNA and molecules creating a programming that becomes who we think we are, right? So that fear, you can call it whatever, dark force or whatever. I'm a non-dualist. I don't think there is a good and evil per se, but I do think there are some forces of, of unhappiness or suffering that we can magnify by taking the wrong route. For me, I don't think there is a personified devil because in my opinion, I think that that just gives too much power to the, to the, to the wrong direction of this. And besides it also creates a lot of duality in myself. I've tried looking at my life as spiritual warfare and it never got me anywhere. I just have my whole goal is to have radical compassion for myself. I've told you this before. Every day I tell myself, I love the man you're healing into. I use that every day. And if I love the man I'm healing into, I love every little weird little demon too. And that's all there is. And I've been that guy, you know? So I just think that for me, it's just not, it's just not helpful to look at it as warfare or the devil. It's, it's helpful for me because I have been the devil probably by most people's standards. It's more helpful for me to just try to love every single part and not wall everything off. I think that habit energy is just our simple programming that we get into to defend ourselves against an, what feels like an unkind and threatening world, you know, that tells us that we're always missing out, that you don't have the right this, you're not the right color there, you don't have the right schooling there, you're not good at math. For me, it was like me not being good at math at an all-math school was, was just as heartbreaking as anything else I've been through. I think that prison was easy compared to St. Mary's. Because I felt so depressed. If suicide would have been an option, I would have taken it. I just didn't know I could kill myself either. <laughs> I just felt that trapped. I've been struggling with depression, anxiety, and fear my whole life. Feeling like everyone else got the menu and got the, got the manual for everything. So for me, it's just not a helpful point of view to look at it as the devil. What it's helpful for me to look at as we were cavemen or whatever we were that were barely surviving and we're in fear and each generation of trying to survive and do these very difficult things and suffering and suffering and suffering all that has been our programming so to try to find a way to positively evolve out of that is the point of all religions and that's all there is i mean there just there shouldn't be this to me, a, a, a dualistic, this is bad, this is good. It's like, this is a little bit less suffering. <laughs> yeah. Um, it sounds like that perspective is that essentially through the generations has distilled and concentrated this habit energy yeah. into the modern human of what we have now. And I guess some people might listen to this and think, well, you're splitting hairs or one is six, the other's a half dozen that we're saying the same thing. And, uh, potentially we are. And, and, and this is why I love having these conversations because my interpretation of in, in my circumstance is that I had a life before I allowed God to soften my heart. 
and I have a life after that. Yeah. And it sounds very similar to your situation. And, and my belief, because of the, the paralysis, sleep paralysis and the, the attacks, spiritual attacks that were happening to me before I found faith, um, is that there, it felt like there was something really truly attacking me, that there was some force that was in my home and had taken root in my life, in my heart, in my psyche, had blocked me off from God, had made me become obsessed with death. And part of me understands one that yes, just people through this process of life and evolution that we found ourselves, that we have, that we essentially have, if we're left to our own devices, we have wicked hearts that go after lust and chaos and, and without a guiding force or principles or practices in our lives that lives that we we will eventually fall into nihilism to chaos to violence to whatever we might so i think that at the at the core of what we're both saying is that there's there was a there was a, a softening moment for you where god actually said i finally have access to paul's heart now I'm going to give him this gift of realization or understanding or breakthrough. And for me, that's the moment when the enemy lost his grip and, and at the moment that God gained access. But again, uh, we're, we're saying the same thing, uh, with different explanations as to what's behind, um, what's actually happening. I'm just grateful, um, to see, you know, I think it was probably right before you ended up in prison where I remember talking with Aaron and I think Jake as well. And, um, and I, it's the first time, man, I know your brothers were patient with you as well. Maybe not as much as your parents, but uh, I remember talking with Aaron and he essentially was just kind of like, fuck that guy, you know, talking about you. He's like, it's nothing but dot, 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 whatever he had to say at that moment. Um, I don't know if, if, if he had completely pushed you out of his life at that point or not, but it sounded like it to me, it sounded like he didn't want you around his child at the time. Um, so there's a, a real redemptive, uh, quality to your story here that, uh, I think is important for people like myself and, and people who might be listening to hear that, um, that I, I guess where, from the moment we, we talked about some, some of the months that followed and the time in prison that followed, but since you've been out of prison and we have still about 20 minutes here, so I think we have time. Um, since you've been out of prison, what did you get involved with that's helped keep you in a mind of, of service orientation? What did your relationship with Mark dare do for you? both good and bad. What was your experience at Heart Ministries? Um, what has kept you alive, really? Yeah. Um, and, and what has brought, and, and, and what has kept you alive from out of prison until now? And what are you up to now? So I think that it all kind of happened. So I had to do couple treatments when I got out too. Um, I had some really serious 
addiction issues and thought I could do them by myself and just couldn't and ended up finding um, a recovery um, center to go to. And I was there for six months and I had to do some trauma work and was really trying to get to the root of like why I didn't feel safe, you know, and this is not something I'm proud of either, but I was so paranoid even for three, four months sober this last time that I had a switchblade in my underwear when I went to bed in a treatment center with locked doors. Like you weren't going to catch me slipping. Like I was out there, you know, um, I would think that if you tried to talk to me too much, you're fed. I mean, I was in a bad place mentally. So I did six months in a trauma informed, um, treatment center, which was great. Um, didn't go anywhere outside of the treatment center unless it was to go to meetings and, and go to meditate. I spent a lot of time with my, um, my sponsor, who's just an incredible um, example of what meditation can do for a man, um, has dedicated his life to, to service as well. And, you know, I was really lucky to have that. But when it was time to go, I was scared to leave treatment. Before, I was like, just let's go. Let's get out of here. This time, I was like, I could stay here forever. It doesn't matter, you know? And um, a guy that we grew up with as well, Connor Berrigan. Remember him? Yeah. Connor Berrigan was working at Heart Ministry Center and came and gave a presentation on this Fresh Start program. And I remember just being like, okay, so you have to go to meetings every day. You have to go to the gym every week. You have to work in a pantry. They pay all your bills to live in a recovery house. Okay, what's the downside here? You know, and we could say the downside is Mark Dare, honestly, but he's dead now, so we can't talk about him. Um, <laughs> but he uh, he said that, and I called my sponsor, and I was like, I feel like God's talking to me right now. I think this is the right thing. I could go sell cars. I could go get a job. But I knew I needed some, you know, chop wood, carry water kind of time of just doing service. And I didn't know what, how good service was going to be for me. So when I got to the Fresh Start program, which is um, – very intensive work program where you work in uh, Nebraska's biggest food pantry. Um, when I got there, we're doing about 20,000 pounds of food a month. When I left, we're doing 250,000 pounds of food a month. Um, that was the middle of the pandemic, though. Things got a little weird. Um, I loved it. I loved filling people's cars with food. I loved organizing a bunch of food. I loved being around Mark Dare, who you'd come in to work, and he'd be like, given these Hoosier like pep talks that would just get you so fired up to go give away food and just give back, you know? And I think really a big turning point was when I was getting, so the fresh start program, I'll talk about that real quick is, uh, you work on soft skills, um, consistency, reliability, work ethic, and attitude Four things and communication. Uh, five things that I didn't have any idea. I had a bad attitude about everything. Um, I was only going to work if I liked it. I wasn't going to do it if I didn't. Um, I was very inconsistent. Um, I had horrible reliability. I, I showed up as a different person every day depending on my mood. I didn't know how to be consistent and have the same affect every day. you know. And these are things that like are determining factors on whether someone can be hireable or consistently put up uh, with at a job and so having that much love and accountability around me was one of the best things that ever happened to me 
Um, I was told the truth by people like Connor, who I grew up with, you know, who was the director of the Fresh Start program. Uh, and Mark Dare, I didn't grow up with, but grew up very similar to how we did. You know, a lot of pressures. Uh, family owned a bank. Dad was an intense guy, is an intense guy. Um, he got into addiction and drugs, uh, got in a DUI and almost killed someone. Very similar story to mine, you know. And, you know, him and I joked it was called a prep to prison pipeline. Um, and just how different we really felt because of our experiences, but how lucky we felt because of our experiences to have one foot in the prison yard and have one foot in the country club and to understand both worlds. The country club has the money and the prisoners are the ones that need the help, right? Or the, the, the poor people are the ones that need the help, whatever it was. We both knew because of our downward spirals, what it was to be actually poor and actually be in bad neighborhoods. Cause we spent a lot of time doing drugs in bad neighborhoods, right? Although we grew up well. And I think that gave us both a different capacity to not just be very close, but he was a very, he was the most intense person I've ever met in my life. Um, and he, and he, he did some very serious good for me and some very serious, um, some stuff I have to work through for a long time, honestly, because, uh, I was, I'm a, I'm a toxically loyal person and I'll do anything, um, for someone I care about. And I did that in, in an unhealthy way with, with him a lot. Um, didn't stand up for myself a lot, but there's one moment that really changed my life with him. And I'm so grateful that I got this from him. I was about to graduate the fresh start program and was, so they were going to find me a job. I didn't want to leave again. You know, it's turning into a theme at this point. I'm starting to be hard to kick out. And uh, I said, he said, what do you want to do when you leave? And I was like, I want to work here. And he goes, you can't work here. You're a fucking liar. And he was right. I was a liar. I wasn't lying about everything. But I was lying about a few things. And to try to get some, um, <laughs> maybe to rationalize or get a cosigner, I called someone in the program. And they go, well, you do exaggerate a lot. And I was devastated because he was right. And that's when I started looking into, you know, varieties of spiritual experience, um, William James, and looking into like what truth really was to myself, you know, like it was a process of like knowing what truth and how much that affected my, my reality. And now what I believe is your ability to be honest and transparent with those around you is is really the determining factor of how much reality you have because our reality is covered by the is is colored by how much of community we do have around our truth and that's just kind of something that has really changed my life and you know I end up getting hired by Mark to run a a, a nonprofit social enterprise laundromat that provided laundry for people that were um, not able to afford laundry. A lot of the people in North Omaha and the poorest uh, neighborhoods in, in the country, honestly, um, would stop doing laundry around Christmas until about March or February. So we were able to create a pivot point for uh, assisted laundry to help people come in. And I set up an app where they would come download the app. They would um, do the laundry themselves and they could leave feeling good about themselves, you know, and we'd give them money every month and try to get them into other programs. And it became 
um, an amazing way to, to, to meet community in a different way. I mean, I could write a book about, I could do a whole podcast on the laundromat too, because that was another huge chapter. I had, didn't know anything about laundromats. I didn't know anything about washing machines or dryers or plumbing or electricity or building an app or working with contractors. But I was there when they put the machines in all the way till, um, leaving, um, about two years ago. And I left because I had been managing the social media bought a drone and was doing a lot of pictures of those long food lines and, um, went on as the marketing director and learned a lot from him from there because Mark was one of the greatest fundraisers I've ever met in my life. Um, every conversation he had was worth a hundred thousand dollars. Sometimes I was just like, how does this guy do this? You know, like he was ra- He's just, he's just a, he's just a very charismatic and caring guy. And he could, um, he could shake a room into tears really quick. Um, and, you know, he's on some podcasts as well. I should probably include those to you sometimes so you can put those in a link because there really wasn't anyone like Mark Dare. And he was like a father figure, a mentor, um, a brother. I mean, we were so close. I mean, our text, all we did is make, but my last text with him, I sent him a picture of Ish, my son, Ishmael, uh, hitting a golf club. And I said, hey, I know you're, uh, you got a lot of free time on your hands. So could you come over here and do some golf lessons for my three-year-old? And he like... <laughs> He texts back and he says, uh, wow, that kid's got a great, uh, great swing. Must get it from his mommy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness, man. Uh, rest in peace, Mark Dare. Um, I'm so grateful, man. I, I, I didn't know Mark personally, but my father did. Um, and I remember when my dad called me, uh, and told me, he said, you remember a while back, there's this guy, you know, he, he almost killed somebody while drunk driving. Omaha wanted him in jail. Omaha wanted him in jail for life. You know, he, he's a very controversial figure. I was like, yeah, of course I remember that guy because it was a source of serious conflict and um, turmoil for dad during that time as well because he was close with them. And he saw both sides. Um, and he knew how special the guy was as well. So I, I remember when, when dad called me that I, he was just distressed and I'm, you know, asking him what's going on. And he said, well, he, you know, he died that, that guy. And, um, and he proceeded to tell me a couple things about what he had done and what he was up to. And I, m- I remember him mentioning, I think it must've been heart ministries or something. Cause I, I had also learned that you were involved in that. And I kind of started putting the pieces together at that point. Um, but, I love that he called you a liar, dude. Um, our spiritual maturity, you know, one of the determining, um, one of the ways to determine a spiritual maturity is our ability to accept reality as it is. And liars, when we're lying, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, especially in the past, is a, a denial of reality. We're really almost trying to shape and change the way things are. At least we can change how somebody perceives how we are or what we're doing or how productive we are or whatever it might be. And that, in some sense, we're trying to actually change what's real. Um, and I can think of no greater gift than, and, than to, um, to receive that feedback from a mentor and kick yourself into action to become an honest person because there's 
very few things I think that are as important as that, um, because you're you're really just doing a disservice to yourself of denying uh, reality, and that's a very uh, it's a place of deep suffering because it always catches up, always, always. Um, I know that we need to wrap this up here soon. Um, I uh, I'd like to know I, I can include those podcast links for sure um, in the show notes, uh, for anybody that's interested that want, wants to hear, um, from Mark Dare. Um, and I guess we have about five minutes. So what, what's that? Okay, cool. Yeah. Let's hear where you're at right now. And, uh, and then I'll, I'll close this out. So part of my intense relationship with Mark Dare was, um, he was the drill sergeant I needed to move on with my life. The reason drill sergeants are so tough is because they don't want everyone crying when the gunshots start going off. Right. Mark was so good for that for me. And he was, he was hard on himself too, but he was really hard on me too. And we had a really tenuous relationship. There's many times where, uh, it was just not very healthy for me to be there anymore. And I love the man to death. God, it was just like such a tough decision, but, um, I left because I want to preserve my relationship with him and everyone else there because it was that sacred of a place for me. Um, I also had had um, a new passion, which was harm reduction in Nebraska, which doesn't exist yet, really. And so I was really kind of, uh, I'd lost um, another friend of ours. Um, I think you know him. I'm not going to mention their name right now uh, to to an overdose um, who was really doing the deal and trying to stay sober and had a slip and died in a recovery house here in Omaha. And um, I was just disgusted with how many of the deaths I'd seen. And at that point I'd seen 70 overdoses and 69 didn't have fentanyl on the coroner report. So where I'm at right now is I've had 85 people in my community die of overdoses in less than three years. And um, no one's really telling the truth because our coroner system here in Nebraska is manned by non-medical professionals for the most part. Um, coroners are usually state attorneys or um, county sheriffs, and each tiny little county or big county is responsible for the transport to a toxicologist or pathologist um, for these reports. So we're not getting the data we need right now to figure out who's actually dying of what. Um, so I'm working on a project through College of Public Health at University of Nebraska Med Center um, where we can start educating on Narcan and start building some community around harm reduction here in Nebraska. Um, I also have a marketing company where I do content creation, uh, <laughs> artificial intelligence, dream interpretation, uh, drone videos. Um, I've actually marketed myself as a creative technologist, which I don't know what that means, but I can tell you that it means that I don't really know what bit of technology I'm going to be using for a, a job or a client until I get there. Um, and that's actually given me the ability to stay creative um, and take care of myself because um, with this much death, uh, including the death of my mentor and including the death of so many friends, um, my new path, you know, I've talked about fear being the path before grief is the new path for me and I've never found anything that's um, brought me closer to God nothing you know there's a Rumi quote I think I told it to you yesterday um, the wounds are where the light comes in and whenever things get really really rough um, and I start finding myself kind of like 
not believing I can get through it. I always think about that quote. It gives me a lot of peace to know that like I'm not suffering for no reason. This is this is how I get closer to my higher power. Um, this is how I get closer and have more compassion and more of an open heart for those around me. Um, and this is how I grow. So amazing, man. Um, thank you again for uh, coming to chat for a second time this week. Um, and just want to let you know, man, that I'm fucking proud of you, dude. And I'm grateful that you're alive. I'm grateful that you have a role and a place in your family again. Uh, I'm grateful for your parents and not giving up on you. I'm grateful for Mark and his mentorship. I'm grateful and proud of you, dude, for, for following through with the action that was required to not come back and, and take yourself to complete chaos again, which we know would eventually be death, um, or, or potentially worse, um, living in, in perpetual hell, uh, right here. So I'm so grateful, man. I'm so proud of you and I love you and your family. And, uh, I'll, uh, I'll always be in touch, man. And I, I feel like there's some really fun topics to be had. I'm, I'm moving in a direction away from technology and kind of, uh, you know, not wanting to engage with AI and all these things. And, and, and you have a different perspective on that one that can be utilized in, in, in terms of spiritual growth and as a tool and ways that maybe are in my blind spots right now. So I feel like we're due, uh, before too long for a, a round two here where we can zoom in on some uh, interesting things that you're up to. Cause uh, we just kind of briefly touched on it. We brought, we took most of the time getting us to where you are now and where you are now. There's a lot of interesting things going on and, um, grateful for the work you're doing, man. And, uh, thanks again. Thanks. Tom.